0: Right on Radio. Right on Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Right on Radio. We are super excited to do this show. I'm going to start off with a bit of a caveat. uh, Some of the subject matter that is going to come up in this particular episode uh really you know there's a few things that yank on my heartstrings, and and this story really kind of checks all the boxes so uh for that listen but i want to also say it really is a story of redemption and god's love in the end so you'll want to stick by this and thankfully because i have a feeling my ear my eyes might uh start to water a little bit uh that's why i have jesse here because she's the tough one (laughs) (laughs) thanks for being here again jesse and jesse is the one who actually brought this uh this fantastic guest uh so without further ado i would like to introduce to you kathleen Pizzutello.
1: Exactly. Very well done, Jeff. Um, a
0: pizzatello. <laughs> pizzatello. <Exactly. laughs> and, and by the way, I, I should mention this story has been featured on like Good Morning America. It made national, international news. Uh, so this is not a s- small or short story you are about to hear. Yeah. So, Kathleen, welcome to Right On Radio.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I I'm I'm a fan of the show. i've I've learned and I've benefited from much of the content on the show. A lot of the guests have really helped me as a survivor myself of uh, trafficking. And um, I'm just so grateful to be here, really am.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're so happy to
2: have you. And I'm ex- excited for you know people to hear your story because I believe you've got a lot of missing pieces as all of us are putting this puzzle together you know, we're learning that there's been this system behind the scenes that's been operating, not just in the United States, but internationally as well. And your story kind of ties that all together and shows how they've been operating.
1: That's exactly right. And you know, we have so many more families, it seems like, you know, there's an awful lot of us women who meet men and men that meet women that are, you know, from a- Bicultural and all that so it's sort of a global world today and we you know we were part of that 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 system as you say Jess you know Mm
0: -hmm. so Kathleen I, I I really feel it's important to in your story to really start off as a child and it it for me it helped paint a picture of you know kind of the emotions and and what you had to survive because you were uh, downtrodden so many times, and and it really started off in your childhood. So and and retrospectively looking back, I think God was probably toughening you up as a little kid for what you had to go through. But you're giving Him glory today. So if you don't mind, just start from being a little girl.
1: Well. Um, first of all, uh, and thank you for saying that because, you know, um, sort of remembering your childhood when there's been so much trauma is hard, you know, just going back and, and, and sort of what what those triggers are and, and what they mean and what they do to us as moms and as adults. It's like, it's important. So I was born to two 15-year-old parents. Um, that were uh, pregnant and ran away from um, the ghetto of Camden, New Jersey. Now, Camden is notorious. It's right along the Delaware River in Philadelphia. My grandpa- my grandmother and grandparents, and grand- so grandmother on one side, great-grandparents on the other side. They lived right along the river. Uh, my young parents, ran away they were 15 years old and my mom was pregnant with my older sister now this is an interesting time because I was an infant by the time she's 18 and she had she the way she tells it is she prayed to God for a healthy baby and my eldest sister and this is in the 50s remember my eldest sister was born with sort of one hand right so like a you know a deformed hand and I believe that that really set my mom up to have, you know, a wound herself with God. And um, so she brings us three girls back and she puts us in the great grandparents' house. Now they had, um, there was some strange stuff that went on in that house. He was American Indian descent and um, I think I was an infant in that house, and then they moved me across the street to my grandmother's house. My two sisters were left over there, and my mother hated her mother. I mean, she hated her. Now, my grandmother was a prostitute, and she had been a heroin addict, and she was, she had certain, a procedure that they did in those days for drug addiction called a lobotomy so they leave me at infancy in that house with her from zero to, to about six years old and uh, she had married a mafia a Chicago Mafia man so you know just putting the pieces of the puzzle together I realized that my grandmother was a prostitute with the Chicago Mafia right and I was left there now I didn't have any contact with the outside world i had no toys i had no friends i i would peer through these windows and look outside and see these you know these kids jumping rope and we were the only white kids in camden okay only white kids so i really wanted to see my sisters across the street i i longed for friends and and yet i didn't know my mother i mean she left us there and she was gone well I'm about six years old and she comes back and she says uh, "I've got a you know i she met a husband she met a man and she's probably in her early twenties then and she takes she asks if I want to go for a ride in her car now I only saw her maybe twice or three times I remember in from zero to six years old I, I, like I remember seeing her you know come for Christmas or something so um Oh, and I did want to add that whenever I could get across the street to my great grandparents' house, I knew there was something very, very dark there. Now I was a toddler, probably right, and a little kid. How could I really know? But I do remember, like my my sisters going up the steps, and him, my great grandfather. Now I'm talking about, would put his hand up their dresses, and you know, and do things but i longed for them so to ride in the car with the lady with yellow hair it was like yay and so but they said you know to get in the car and to go for a ride you need to be blindfolded so they blindfolded me and i'd get in the car and that would be the last i would ever see the people i thought were my parents this chicago mafia man who i loved and hazel my grandmother now I will add something here. It took me a long time and maybe Jesse can add to this. I I spent 6 years alone with Hazel in that house. Mm-hmm. And um, she had her own special way. She was a robot, okay? She didn't speak, she kind of moaned. But she would she would always give me a Enemas. Mm. And I would scream and cry, and I could not understand what was happening to me. I mean, I, I didn't have anybody to help me or figure anything out. So by the time I left, I loved the Italian Mafia man. He was a, a war veteran, and he was kind, and he was my protector. But I didn't care about her. I, I wanted to just ride in a car or be with my, this woman. who, But I, I never saw them again. And now I was with this instant family. I had two new sisters, a new father, and a new mother. And my mother hated me because I reminded her of her mother, who she tells turned tricks in the room while she was a little girl. Now, how I ended up across the street, I I really don't know what happened there. But... um, Growing up now, I had uh, an elder sister who spent a lot of time in Shriners Hospital to have her hand remade, right? And this mother who was gone all the time, so my parent, like who was taking care of us, was my handicapped sister, right? And so um, I'm growing up in this house and my mother is extremely abusive. I mean, I didn't even know what the word paranoid or neurotic meant. And, uh, and so um, she would start with um, new, uh, um, astrology and tarot cards and meetings in our house, um, talking to the dead meetings. Now, I would be maybe 10 11 and I would sit on the stairs in the living room and I would listen to these meetings and They would scare me as a kid, you know, like I I didn't understand anything. Nobody ever explained anything ever to me and then um, I I just found an outlet in in horses. I started to draw horses and I and um, I would go to the stables so I, go, I would spend all my weekends at the stables, and I loved being there. It was a bit of a tomboy. She'll, she would cut my hair short and um, always want me to be kind of a boy, you know? And I was kind of a tomboy, you know? And so um, she, be, my mother became um, – um, she had a boss uh, that was an entertainment um, executive, And um, she got him to move in next door, and she would use me to, um, to babysit for him. Now, he had two children, and if I reported back good reports to my mother, I could go to the stables. If I didn't report back good things, I would not be able to. But she would go with her lover, this man that lived next door, her boss, and she would meet him at the stables. Now this went on from eight to 18 years old. So imagine I had to start to keep secrets because I would see what was happening in his house. She would position me in her bedroom window to look in, to look at his bedroom window and to tell her how long the light was on, all the things that was going on. Well, soon her and her uh, entertainment executive boyfriend, lover, decided that um, she was going, that, that I would make a good model. Now I was 14 years old and I was in school and I was not a very good student and I was extremely bullied in school. I mean, it was awful. I just, I had, I was so love starved. I had no people skills. I couldn't protect myself. If I asked for my grandparents, I was beaten. If I asked, my sisters were just like horrible. Just, just hated me, and so I, um, I thought, oh, this sounds good. Yeah, now I grew taller than my two sisters, so this is a perfect opportunity. I'm gonna be, a, I'm gonna do this. I, they could take me out of school and across the bridge to Philadelphia. I go and I join this TV station and I become a publicity model. <laughs> they, I, we would hold things up in car shows and escort like. Um, sports figures, Joe Fra- I escorted Joe Frazier and um, all these, you know, sports figures and rock stars. And now nobody really knew how young I was. I mean, I, I think they must, some of them knew some of the older girls would, I could hear them with these TV, these TV execs in their offices, what I understand now is they were just servicing them you know they were just taking care of them whatever and they would always say leave her alone don't don't touch her she's too young and i would be like so naive you can't even imagine but i saw things in that tv station and i thought that's what i thought oh i'm special right oh i must be special well about four years into it from four uh, from 14 to 18 the TV executive, the president of the TV station says, you're going to go for a ride with me in the car. And he takes me for a ride in his powder blue vintage car. And he pulls over the side of the road and he's an old man. And I am 17, 18 years old. And he says, are you on the pill? And I'm like, uh, well, you need to be on the pill for the next ad, you know, now I'm doing TV commercials and in school, my life changes from being bullied to all these kids in my school, seeing me on in print ads and the newspaper and TV commercials. And now everybody likes me and I'm thinking, Oh, this is the way to do it. Like, you know, be it's, it's about beauty. It's about the flesh. It's, it's about being, you know, like that. And so when this old man takes me for a ride in the car, I'm like, Hmm, what do I say like what do I go so I kind of go along with it oh it was just so I was so young and he was so old and it was so creepy well I drew I drove across the bridge back home and I mean I cried the shook and cried the whole way I lost that job (laughs) like right after that they just said don't come back I guess he must have known you know i no one ever asked, you know, anything. And so I moved I moved out of the house and I got a room. I rented a room. I'm about 18 years old now. And I rent a room with this married couple. And I, um, the, the husband uh, comes into the room and he rapes me. Now I'm 18 and I'm pregnant. And I'm blaming myself. And I'm saying, you know, I mean, I knew... I knew nothing. I was, I was, so empty inside. I missed my grandfather. I, I was, yeah. And then I, I met a uh, um, a hotel, a young hotel guy came through town, you know, my South Jersey, hometown, and he was a hotel executive. Um, and uh, for Hyatt and his family were connected to Playboy. Well, his father was Hugh Hefner's partner and Mm. he offers to take me away from it all. And I'm like, oh, I was probably, I was 18 and he was probably 22 and Hyatt was gonna move him to Atlanta. So off in his Corvette we go. And I'm like, chow, goodbye, Jersey. I'm never looking back, right? And uh, 10 years I lived with him in 10 locations for the hotel. We lived a high life. He was, they absolutely loved him. He was a talented guy. Hyatt Regency, Atlanta, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, um, everywhere. And yet he would beat me. And he would, um, he beat me constantly. And I was always pregnant. And I, I he, um He loved to play with guns, so he would hold uh, 357 magnums to my head and play Russian roulette, and I would think, I love him. I love him. He is the man I love. So I kept following him, and he would move me around all the different Hyatts, you know. Well, finally, I was just so beaten up. I'm at the end of my 20s, and um, there was a young boy at the time, me growing up in Jersey, who wanted to become a comic, and he ended up going to Hollywood and being the MC at the comedy store on Sunset. And he was super, he was a nice Jewish boy, and I want to tell you something, this guy had, he was my, he was like a big brother to me, you know, and he got so tired of all the abuse, me always showing up abused and beaten, black eyes and all that, and he'd say, You know, just we're going to get you a little apartment right there on Hollywood and Sunset, you know, right there on Fairfax or whatever. And so I got this little apartment and um, I started hanging out the comedy store with the comics with them. And, you know, it was sort of like a hands off my little sister thing. Right. And I am telling you now I look back at that and I'm like. These were young Jay Leno's. Now, Richard Pryor was sort of the big guy, you know, that they all looked up to at the time. And um, yet they all were like big brothers to me. All So during the day, get this, during the day, I worked at the MGM Studios running the private dining room. Okay. So I'm waiting on... Steven Spielberg and Richard Dreyfus and I mean I am moving in the like the movie star world in Hollywood like it was unbelievable and they all wanted me to be an actress well I didn't want to be an actress because all I did was remember what happened to me in in that tv station you know the casting couch story so right. I would just turn away from that and at night I would hang out at a comedy store. Robin, mm-hmm. Williams had just started like Mork and Mindy and I had Sam Kennison, you know, in my apartment and driving my car and all these comics that were just like, you're too good for these guys. You just have to, you know, cut it out and you know, they they were constantly like protecting me. Well, I found the answer to my problem. Now that the hotel guy leaves me pregnant. I'm in Hollywood. I got the comics protecting me, I've got this life, riding my bike to the MGM studios, you know, during the day and refusing to be an actress, but I'm hanging out in these circles with all of this, you know, I mean, Rod Stewart. You cannot believe the people that I was hanging out with and it, it, they meant nothing to me. Like they didn't. I, it didn't, I wasn't starstruck in other words, right? Um, but I always wanted to just hang out with Alan, um, the, the, the comic, you know, he, he uh, wrote for Roseanne Barr and um, I was the only girl though, you know, and so anyway, I meet this Argentine model and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy was, he was the Gillette guy on TV, you know, like I was like, and I found myself four months later on an airplane to Buenos Aires, Argentina to meet the family. Now, all I wanted to do was run away from my life. I didn't marry him then. I didn't speak any Spanish. I didn't know anything. I just, oh, it sounded so exotic. Run away from my life, you know? So off to Buenos Aires I go, and it's like this big Italian. Argentina is very, very Italian. It's nothing like Mexico, okay? It's very Italian. So. I meet the matriarch of the family and she loves that I'm a Pisatello because it's Italian. And I look at this family and I say, oh, I want this. Now, I, as a child, I prayed to be adopted. I prayed for family. I prayed all I ever wanted to do was have family. So this fit perfectly in my world, right? I didn't love, like, I didn't love him. I was attracted to him. But I noticed that anytime I, now I had a little mantra because he kept following me around when I first said, I don't date foreigners. And I kept saying it because I had like a check, you know, some kind of, now I had no faith. I was running around. I was in Scientology. I was in these Buddhist yoga things. And I, I wanted some kind of spiritual connection with God, but I was looking for it in all the wrong places. Mm. And so by the time I got to Buenos Aires, it was so alluring, you know. I see my future father-in-law who looks like he's out of GQ magazine, you know, with these, this uniform from the military that just looked, wow. And uh, they're fascinated with me, an American. What I didn't know, though, was that Argentina had its own history. It, it, It had just finished. Now, this is in 1986 when I first arrived there. It was like it was stuck in a time warp. Everywhere I went, you know, like maybe if it was cut off from the world for i don't know like maybe six or seven ten years it just looked like a time warp if, it, if you know what i mean the cars were really old like maybe you would think of cuba right but i didn't know the family i didn't know anything about the family i didn't care he takes me to rio he's doing commercials now he doesn't tell me he's this model he doesn't tell me he's this model we're in rio at the sugar loaf you know the the tourist thing at the top in in Rio. And there's these French, these French um, um, soldiers, you know, sailors. And they're dressed in these cute little white alphas where this tourist spot. And they come up to him and they ask him for a um, autograph. And I'm like, wait a minute. What What are these little French guys ask? And he said, oh, you know, I, I do commercials in France and Spain and I do... lot of commercials all through Europe and I said what now I'm starting to understand this guy that I ran away with to South America I'm around the world I'm in love thinking of my hotel guy but too late I'm already there well now I get back to Los Angeles with him and I decide I want to marry this guy I mean I want that fantasy life who else is going to want me, right? I'm thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So we get married in 1988. And um, I have this modeling career, by the way, I had my own modeling career, I always had people that would want to photograph me. And most of the time, they would drug me, you know, for the photographs. Um, But I had a little modeling career going you know print but nothing like him he was doing commercials everywhere so we get married and it's 1988 we go to argentina the wedding is there it's all these people that look very aristocratic i mean like you know upscale people We have the wedding in a very special place. Now, keep in mind, I'm in Los Angeles living with him, and his family is arranging this wedding the whole time. while I I didn't know where it was going to be. I didn't even know. I didn't know anything about what... The only thing I knew was my wedding dress that my mother actually got me. So by the time I get there, my mother comes with my two sisters. Now, one of my sisters didn't come, but the one sister came that had the problem that was born with the one hand. Now, during the wedding, strange things started to happen. Now I'm an American, I don't know, I don't, my wedding was in Spanish, part of it, like what I could, my sister was, they didn't even have bridesmaids, they don't do that there, right? And yet everybody was fascinated with these Americans, the Yankees, they called us, and so they, that we have this wedding, it's at night, and in the morning, my sister who is handicapped goes missing, and I get the word, they they take me and my new husband. We were married only a few hours, and we're in the navy in the navy um, in the navy hotel um, in downtown Buenos Aires, and we're in downtown Buenos Aires, and my family was staying there, my mother and my sisters, and my sister goes missing. And so uh, it's like chaotic. It's like, what? Where could Karen be? And so we all just waited, and and um, you know the family gathered, everybody gathered at the Plaza Hotel, and we're trying to figure out where am I now? Kidnapping is a very big deal for Americans and foreigners, and they stake out some of these big hotels in these big cities in Latin America. It's very common. Um, but it was Karen, of of all the people, you know, my sister Karen was very special, and she was a nurse, though, you know, and she had been in Shriners Hospitals, and Karen knew how to take care of herself, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, because she, um, she had a tough life, and she appeared, um, she got away from her captors, they took her all around the city, and took stuff out of her wallet, and, you know, found her driver's license and stole money and raped her and all this stuff. And there was a horrible, horrible outbreak of mosquitoes. Like it was just horrific. And she was completely bitten, but she got away from her captor. She was out in the middle of one of these circles, like, you know, in Italy where the cars drive around very common in Buenos Aires. So she was out in the middle of there. Some uh, taxi picked her up and got her back to the Plaza Hotel everything but my family left right away and that's how i started my marriage that that was horrible because it was you know i look back at it now and jesse there are many many things this family represented it represented i look back at at the things that were done and the places now the wedding itself was clearly like i i believe that i was sort of chosen you know we have many 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 women who are sort of um, um, pursued by foreign men to get green cards to get the status to almost like we're exploited ourselves does that make sense and and so i i knew that by then i i kind of knew it and it's almost like i had all these warnings things were going wrong things were not good this was not good but i kept telling myself i can fix him i can get enough therapy we can get therapy we're gonna get therapy and we were get we were in therapy before we got married in los angeles we we had therapists get up and walk out of the room and say Catholic Church told me, don't marry this guy. You don't make don't get married. I'm like, don't. And I was so rebellious. I just knew I could fix him. And mm-hmm. I was so love-starved that, you know, it was all about the physical. I I yeah. wanted all that, you know. And yet what was important that I found out later on was all those warnings, you know, I would just do anything to be able to rethink and say, why didn't I listen to that warning in my heart, in my head? Cause I know it was God. I know God was trying to help me. I mean, I do. That particular place we were married in later on, I found out was part of Argentina's dark, dark history argentina is very special in latin america and any latin american will tell you that you could talk to somebody from mexico to guatemala and they will tell you the argentines think they're europeans they don't even consider themselves hispanos right they're they're Mm -hmm. not even they're part of europe right but that place i got married at was part of central it was a particular place in history of argentina's dirty war now argentina had been abducting women and children and abducting people itself during the coup of the 70s and 80s they overthrew the government juan peron you may have heard of evita you know madonna came to argentina and she did the mid and she did the version of evita you know and um very sort of romantic story about Evita and Perón and the history of Argentina, but what's more important about the dirty war was they were abducting women and children. They were doing it and 30,000 people went missing. So this was called the dirty war. Now I'm, I'm the picture you see, He had taken me to his childhood home. I hadn't had children yet. I was married and in Argentina. I was a well-kept aristocrat. I lived amongst the expats. Across the street from me was the Canadian ambassador's house. I could see from my balcony into his balcony. So I saw a lot of stuff going on with the Canadian ambassador residence. Um, Next door was the French ambassador. Uh, Finland was behind me. I mean, literally all the expats live in the same san Isidro area of buenos aires right guards on every corner you know with guns i mean it's still like that i'm sure more even so today well he takes me he decides he's going to take me now he's very troubled and i don't know anything during the wedding somebody in english whispers in my ear in english and says look into the family you're marrying into now, I tuck that away in the back of my head, right? I mean, I'm still living in Los Angeles. I'm married to him, but I don't think about that until he takes me five hours from Buenos Aires to this dark place he grew up. It's a Navy, Navy base along the coastline. And I start asking, now I'm pregnant and I'm sick. I'm like sick, nauseous from pregnant. and And I start asking, what went on here like what 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 went on here and and uh where are all the people and what happened in these dark buildings i mean it was really scary now i I will tell you that probably you guys know that um witchcraft in brazil and argentina is a big deal Mm-hmm. They do sacrifices and all that. So I would see a lot of that stuff like outside my house in Buenos Aires, you know, I'd see like candles and a dead rooster beside a tree. And I'd think, cause I would think because I live near a, a racetrack and I would think, OK, it's just part of the life here. I could care less. You know, I mean, I didn't I didn't care. I didn't know, you know. You know. The dirty war was something I started asking questions about. Well, what was the dirty war? How come we didn't know anything about this in the United States? What do you mean? Um, and they nobody ever wanted to answer. They don't wanna talk about Evita. They don't wanna talk about Perón. They don't wanna talk about anything. It's like, we're on to a new life here in Argentina. You know, we wanna be more like the like America. We wanna be, but keep in mind, divorce wasn't even legal in Argentina until 1987. Okay. These countries Mm -hmm. were like in lockdown. Okay. Socialist countries, military was just running this country just a few years ago before I got there, but I didn't know. So this particular place became very, very important when I learned about the dirty war. Mm -hmm. Now there was something called operation condor operation, Charlie, all this stuff I uncovered later on when I remembered, look into the family you married into but you know i was trying to fix the family i i wrote a letter in english and gave it to my husband and said read this to popeye his his nick his name is popeye because he's navy Mm. military right read it to him and it was all about tell me about the history so we can heal i was going to be a mom i wanted to heal i thought this would be a good idea well guess what not a good idea to start asking questions okay i was a bit of a rebel i you know asked too many questions um but argentina was a wounded wounded country wounded country that didn't want to look at their past and they they loved they loved i'm not to say they loved but i find out about the grandfather who was decorated by Hitler. Now, wait a minute, I said to my mother-in-law, wait a minute, you're in Berlin in 1938. Because the Argentines knew more about my history, the foreigners, people in foreign countries, especially Latin America, they know more about our American history, our history in general. I I felt like, wait, I don't even know any of the stuff they know, and it's my country. like. It was, it was bad. And so I started to get really good at um, Spanish. I, I was pregnant, so I said, I better learn the language before my children are born. I'm asking questions about the dirty war. Um, the, my father-in-law is shutting me down, but the maids that are living with me are starting to tip me off. And they're starting to tell me and give me little tips, right? Now he's gone, my husband. He works for an American company. He got his green card and he spent all these years using me to smuggle electronics and goods into the, into Argentina. So I'm happy, like, Oh good. You know, I'm smuggling containers of stuff in for him. And he's, he's, you know, making all these deals. And I thought we were being treated special because well, just because I don't know, we were special, but I started to notice. How people were, re- now I'm learning language a little bit. I'm learning a little bit about history and I'm saying, oh, you know what? This is deeper and darker than I ever imagined. But it, it could never have been until I had children. Now I have two sons and I'm in the church and we get whisked away because he leaves us. Uh, they're four and six years old when he leaves us. And, um, I, um, he runs away to India and he says, I got to go to find my spirit. I got to go. He's kind of losing his mind. Right. And he runs away to India with my neighbor and I've got a four and six year old child. And I'm living in this brand new home, maids, quarters, uh, groundskeepers, And I am not kidding you. My pastor, I'm now I find this American church. I'm in the church with all these expats from the State Department, the embassy, and they make up our church, Canadians, uh, British, and the Americans. And uh, I start working with the help. Argentina, I'm going into orphanages that never let any foreigner in, but they're letting me in. So I'm seeing the inside of these orphanages, you know, and I have now two little kids and my pastor says, we need to baptize you and pray about what to happen, what to happen, what we're going to do. Cause you're by yourself, you're alone. He abandoned you with these two kids. What, and the pastor arranges everything for us to get out of the country. Now in Argentina, you have to have, permission papers to leave the country not just a passport you can't just do that because the the patriarch are always in charge of children okay now bloodlines are very important because my eldest son Dylan was the first grandson born uh, I guess this may, well, first, my husband was the first grandson of his generation, and then my son is born um, to the as the first grandson. All these granddaughters, but there were no grandsons to the only grand uh, to my husband, who's the only son. So these boy lines were very, very important to these bloodline families, I believe, or elite elite families, right? At this time, I still didn't know anything about Nazi Germany. I didn't know anything. And they're taking me to these villages in the Andes, where the family home is, next to a convent. And I'm seeing strange things going on there. But they wanted this grandson, okay? They, whatever it took, I was taken care of. He was My husband was traveling and traveling all over the Western Hemisphere for his U.S. company. And I was kept. I was just kind of kept. They took me from one location to the other location. And I kept asking questions, you know, like, what, what happened in that place? Oh, my gosh. The place I was married later on, I found out was Central Naval Intelligence for Argentina. The abbreviation was S-I-N. that tells you something (laughs) now i you know i know all of this is super fantastical you know like uh i'm i'm going from hollywood to but understand something there were women that had lost their children in these detention camps that were tortured they were kidnapped now these are these are the missing from the Argentina's dirty war. They had taken them to this childhood Navy base where my ex-husband grew up and they tortured them. And they did this thing that became notorious later on when they brought them before the tribunals in Europe um, for crimes against humanity called death flights. So what they would do is these women would be in these detention camps. They'd kidnap them off the streets and they would drug them, they torture them, keep them in these detention camps. They drug them, torture them. If they were pregnant, they kept them alive long enough for them to have the babies. And then they would put them on these aircraft and they dropped them out over the Atlantic called death flights. Now think about this. My ex-husband's grandfather is decorated in, Nazi Germany in 1939. Now he's decorated, okay? He comes back to Argentina, and in the 50s, he becomes the ambassador to Cuba. Now, the Dirty War was in the 70s and the 80s, and I'm struggling now, right? Because I got these two little kids, and my pastor got me on a boat to get home, and I'm just trying to put together all the pieces of the history of Argentina, of the family, of what happened to these, all these children? What happened to all these people that were in these detention camps? What were these death flights? Who was in charge of this stuff? Who came up with the idea of a death flight? And they were kidnapping nuns and priests and killing them and our embassy, See, the, they declassified all these documents recently during Obama's time. So I start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together with the pieces of the puzzle of the family. Well, don't ask any questions, you know, because everybody kept telling me there is this family relative you got to ask about. And I'm like, I don't know. I got more pieces of the puzzle that I can handle. Who is this famous person in the piece of the puzzle, okay? I, I don't know. Um, oh. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to put it uh, together for you. But many of, the law, of these law professors started to document the intolerable situations for children. Now, these were expat children caught in the Hague Convention. This is when mothers flee the country with their kids. I had fled to the U.S. with my two small boys, and I see that they're starting to document our stories, and um, they're comparing us to the Ilian Gonzalez case, this small boy from Cuba that they held at gunpoint and sent back to Cuba. Well, I survive a federal trial with them, my boys, and uh, they get sent back to Argentina. They were seven and nine years old then, from Florida. They get sent back, and uh, the weirdness of all of it was just like the 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 way they treat women and children—that they. They did with the dirty war. I mean, they were they were trying to get control of my children, and and yet my my husband was a clear abuser. I um I was grateful that these law professors, uh, law schools started to document what was happening to children that were caught in this one world order law right of the Hague Convention, but I wanted to understand. The history of the family, too, because I, I couldn't understand their power. How could I have lost my children when he, he was such an abuser? And I had so much abuse, but they would not give my children um, representation in the federal court. There's no support. There's no social workers. There's no foster care. There's nothing available. All of our domestic violence laws supersede are superseded by the international law so i had a protection order for him and it was void so we get into the shelter in florida my two little children and the and the shelter says we can protect everybody else but we can't protect you
0: now well i'm like so well, kathleen i just want to make sure because your, your kids were shipped off no then- i was
1: with them i was with them jeff
0: oh you were with them yes okay.
1: thank you for clarifying My pastor got us on a boat out of Argentina through Uruguay and up through Brazil. And we, we had a home donated to us in Fort Myers, Florida. So we went there and then we ended up going into a shelter. We needed counseling. We needed help. We needed protection. And when, um, so I was with them. Oh yeah. I was with them. He, he had run away to India. He came back from India. He found us gone and he was furious. And it was game on. Now, right before I left, I do want to tell you that my pastor, who was from Indiana but he ran the American Church in Argentina, it's who I worked with with the you know going into the orphanages and stuff there, um, he 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 said, you know, we need to pray about this, and and he baptized me, and two days later I was on this boat with these two small children. And that's when we ended up in in the shelter in Florida. Now, I will tell you that we went from living in a luxury, elite lifestyle with living maids and everything. There are no real blacks in Argentina. So we get into the shelter in in Fort Myers, Florida, and they have 16-year-old black boys in there. My boys had never even seen a black child. You know, they were sort of... Very protected, but that life in that shelter was so demonic. I can tell you, horrific stuff. The shelters are a great place to learn about the cycle of abuse, but it's, it's hard. These are horrible places. Hmm. Seven weeks we were in that shelter, federal trial comes up, and they five days of a federal trial and they send my children back to my ex-husband now i've got all this memory of the family and their power and i'm saying wait a minute why did that trial go so weird now we had a professor from the university of florida from the political science that began to talk about argentina's history and he said you know judge if you send these children back this is bad news. I mean, this is it, it, there it, there was already rioting in the streets at that time. You know, Argentina's economy had crashed. It was like it would be like if you sent them back to Venezuela right now. Okay? These third culture kids, right? Third culture kids are kids that are not from one country, they're not from another. They're like our global kids now, right? This is the way the world is. And these kids, they suffer big time just having that dynamic on their lives. Right? Right. So I lose them. I totally lose them. They're, they're seven and nine years old and they are starting to document intolerable situations. And the end of this article that says, you know, intolerable situations for children, uh, said that they had, they had no representation in this, in this federal trial. By the way federal trials are very intimidating they're all um, supporting the left-behind parent so if you're a fleeing mother you have no help and an international lawyer is thousands of dollars so the abusive parent or the left-behind parent this is not how the Hague Convention was dr- supposed to be drafted they didn't think of this idea we are left totally vulnerable And then they grab the children, these federal judges, they don't rule from the bench, and they send them back to Argentina. Wow. And I lost them, they were seven and nine years old. And off they go, and they create this huge um, celebration in Argentina, the same way they did in Cuba for the little Ilian Gonzalez boy, hanging signs in the street, we beat America, you know, the federal judge is a god and all this stuff. And then you've got two small children that are just devastated. Yeah. They didn't even speak the language really, because we always spoke English in the house. You know, he wouldn't let us speak Spanish um in the household. And so I I packed myself up and I decided to go into Argentina and um I'm I'm notified from the from the State Department. I, I'm I'm hearing that Dylan is in trouble. Brandon is in tr- they're in trouble, and um, this is a letter. I would like to read from the child's pleading for help. Okay, Dylan had a teacher in in school that want, that made a connection with him. Dylan shared a lot of his stories of abuse, and so he made a connection with this teacher, and the teacher got this letter to the federal judge that had sent them back. And this is what Dylan said to them. Now keep in mind, this is a lot, but I went back, took me a year to find them. I was under house arrest. I was uh, taken to, uh, I went to the embassy for help. The embassy said, wait, wait, part of this agreement to return them by the federal judge was do not continue any criminal charges against the mother. That's the agreements these judges are making. If the mom can go back, because these kids need their mothers, they they have to have we're like their protectors, you know. Well, the Argentines came after me, of course. They didn't keep the agreement. So I couldn't go into the country. I was a I was a wanted on Interpol, I was a wanted criminal. But I needed to go in. And so Dylan gets this letter out through his teacher to the federal judge. And this is what he wrote. Judge Story, please listen to me. You sent me back to, an Ar- to Argentina with my father in February 2008. This is the second trial. We're the only two-time federal Hague case, I believe the only two-time case in the world that I think, I think, We lost our protector. I talked with you in your office. I told you then that I couldn't go back. Things have been, things have gotten so hard. My mother couldn't come. She is wanted as a criminal here. I haven't seen her. We need her. Judge Story, his name is Story, Judge Story. Since I've been back, I have begged to see someone from the court. We haven't seen any persons for more than three months. Nothing came out in our trial of what we lived. My father and his family are hateful and hurting me and my brother. They make fun of us. They call us Christians and Americans. I don't know if you can help, but I still want you to know what we're going through. I took a trip, two hours to get help from the embassy, alone, and I showed them beatings I got from calling the embassy. He hurts us for telling how he leaves us locked in without any phone or contact. When I called the police, they got on the phone and talked with my famous grandfather. Then they leave us with no help. Everyone is afraid here to help us because of my famous grandfather. My father refuses to let the embassy visit us for long periods of time. My mother insisted. He refuses the Argentine police. Even the school refuses to know. how how we're living with my dad's sister is in the school and we travel a whole hour to get there. We've been left so alone. Much of my father's, my father spits on us and calls us Yankees. He kicks me and punches me and even refuses to let me speak to my mother. I have had to fight. My mom was always protecting us and now she wants to go to jail here to help us. Do you know the people you were returning us to? They were powerful and hurtful people. I will fight, but you could have helped us. The embassy comes, but we, but we keep, um, uh, but we're kept here as prisoners. This was so bad. What decision you made? Please, Judge Story, help us. Some, um, somehow my father told the pastor in the U.S. that you gave him to us because we are ill. We need help. He hurts us when we, when we tell what he's doing, but I feel so sad and sick. I throw up in school. My brother begs, my brother begs, we are kids. We deserve to stop this famous family from, from controlling us and keeping us like they did prisoners. Please. We need help. I've asked for help. And, and every time I get beaten up, do we have rights? It's too corrupt here with my grandfather. Read who they are. It's different here. Please, don't forget us. Help. Signed, Dylan. Now, keep in mind, I got into the country, and he kept moving them. Now, they changed their identities. And the fathers networked this law. Because everything is paid for the left-behind parent, they have learned this. My ex-husband used three other fathers to network that also brought Hague cases against American mothers. They lost their children too. Now they didn't have the history background and the power that my children, my family had, but I would, I found them in a, um, in a gaucho village, he kept changing them and moving them. When he found out I was not going to jail, he, um, took them to a gaucho village where his sister was at a school. And uh, we planned, I was able to visit with them at a school that he had them at. The headmaster let me in. Um, and I would meet with Dylan in, a, in, a, um, in an old cemetery to give him food. He had shaved his head. He, they thought he was going to blow up the school like Columbine because Columbine had just happened. And Dylan was very angry, and, but he became very resourceful. And I think, you know, one of the biggest parts of this story is that children actually do start to take matters in their own hands. My two sons took trips in cars and went to the embassy and did amazing things because no one was helping them. Um, that picture you saw earlier with the back of their heads was them. Outside of a courthouse that was this courthouse was it used to be a hospital for terminally ill children, and now it was a family courthouse that held us and it was corrupt it was just. Well. And um, they would wrangle these judges, you know and um, and try to get justice themselves dylan chained himself up now these kids are now so much has gone on i mean house arrest they made an attempt on my life i had in argentina by the way they have women police stations only for women that's how bad domestic violence is and it's accepted he chained himself up outside this courthouse with, son, with a sign about the rights of the child because they had lost school. They had, they were torturing us. I mean, they were just torturing us. I can't even tell you the things that we endured. It was so horrible and we couldn't live, you know, we ended up living in the church for two and a half years. Uh, the church gave us protection and this is the American church, right? Um, mm. The the satanic things, Jesse, is really what I would ask you, you know, I would get into that courthouse and I would smell things like sulfur and I would plead with them and I could see my sons and I couldn't touch them and I wanted to save them, but I knew the history of this family, very, very powerful, and yet I could not imagine that this had been going on for generations. This family was, they were notorious. Che Guevara was part of the family. And of course, the end of the story is that my younger son made his way home. He made a plan. Um, this is us, when he made it home, he he made a plan and his he wrote this memoir. He documented his his journey out of bondage, uh, memoirs of an international escape. He did that at 17. Both boys took matters in their own hands. They fought the family. They were in foster care. They were hospitalized in Argentina under police protection. Um, it just got horrific. And um, finally, Brandon got home. I got them out one at a time. All three of us had to leave separately because the Argentines considered me, a, you know, I was always watched. I was followed. I was just, I mean, the, the, the torture of what they did to us. Um, they played with our minds. They let us think we were going to be able to go home. Um, and yet nothing ever happened. You know, justice is a weird thing. Um, I'm not. I'm not healed. I look at the stories of some of these women that were taken and, you know, were trafficked in different ways. And I just found out that even the things that I lived as a young publicity model, you might say, I didn't know we didn't call it trafficking in those days. So here I am trying to be a mom and survive with my children, navigate the law which was corrupt,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um, tell the story and get people to understand that this, this law needed to be looked into. I, I kept saying, wait, there's generational stuff going on here, generational stuff of um, the women and children that lost their children, the American mothers that lost their children, the deals that were being made for my children, And yet we, we, we trusted our government, we trusted the government, these two federal judges that pulled me in their office and said, I can't tell you what's going on, but our hands are tied, you need to make a deal. Well, how do you make a deal with an abuser? How do you do that? Yeah. You, you can't did. make a deal with abusers. My sons tried to make a deal with the abusers, his, their abuser. And they ended up taking the matters in their own hands, pleading for help. That letter I read to you did nothing because there was a connection between how our government used the Argentine military from the dirty war. And I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle yet because these documents are just being, you know, I mean, I love Julian Assange because he has helped me put so many of the pieces of the puzzle together. I looked at Argentina, Che Guevara, the family history, Nazi Germany, who was this family I ran away with? And yet I had birth, I gave birth to these two boys. Mm-hmm. Brandon looked at those. My younger son, Brandon, looked at the constant times we were in the embassy pleading for help as they're growing up and uh, the corruption is going on. I'm seeing all this stuff in the embassies and the foreign ministry. I'm calling the State Department for children's issues is totally corrupt. I don't care what they do to me. I'm telling you, the State Department, these embassies, I saw stuff inside the embassies and the foreign ministries because I would not give up. They hated me because I would show up and I'd say, I want to know what you're doing. I want to understand. And they'd give me letters and they'd send me off to these secret places and say, don't tell anybody. And I'd say, oh, they would drive me around in these suburban, white suburban cars and, and say, just go along with it. And I'd say, wait a minute, you can't. My children are in a hospital or they're in, they're in, what, what, I'm, I, I just want to be an American, you know, with my rights and, and helping my children survive. What in the heck are you doing? And guess what? When these children get returned on these return orders, because these federal trials, they are a front. They know, these judges know exactly what's going on. these are deals made between countries and guess who is the number one country that has networked how to uh kidnap children and uh bring a head case because uh they pay for your law they these big law firms pay for all your your fees Uh, none of the mothers get that we're the fleeing parent right trying to protect our children living in hiding and guess what After 2011, uh, I'm sorry, 9-11, there was this underground system. The shelter told us all about this because we were going to have our identities changed, right? We could go into the the system where these federal judges would change our identity. And but our case just crossed the line after 9-11. So now all of that underground protection for women and children in the US gone. It's gone. Wow. I can tell you that I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, but I know mothers contact me all the time in hiding. They're in hiding. And they're like, I'm 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 living with these kids, what can I do? What And do you know what I tell them? Jesse, I I promise you this is a journey of of faith okay because in the smack in the middle of this my pastor from indiana who knew us as a family right he knew us and i'm in the church and i'm working with the poor of argentina he says to me you need to be baptized and we're going to get you out of here so you can get help that is where my spiritual journey began Right. And it's really where the war, this spiritual war began for this tug of war for these children. Mm-hmm. This is hard for us survivors on many levels because we're watching the rescue of children. Like we know it's happening on many levels. You were a child. I, I hear about, um, it, is it Mason? Uh, what's her name? Um, uh, now Madison, sorry, Madison. Um, And I think we all have the same problem of trafficking and our children. It's like we're all in the same building, but we're all on a different floor. Right. Trafficking is trafficking. What happens to these children after they're sent across the border? They're sent back, nobody knows about. They die, many of them have died Many of them are just put back into a system of sexual abuse. Now, I think they were too high profile. I think I brought a lot of attention onto the case. I wouldn't give up. Good Morning America said I was either nuts or like a hero, but the truth of the matter is, I would not give up. I was like the, I was like the woman in the Bible that just kept bothering the judge. I would not give up, and I believe that justice should, you know, but then you know I I know the the Bible talks about there never that the law is perverted and there won't be justice.
0: So, justice. Kathleen, let me just interject here because I think this is a really great place to do a segue, and you know because you're getting into your redemption story. Uh, but I want to unpack some of the things that have happened. Oh, let me change the view here. Uh, no, we're still not all on. Hold on. And swap square screen. Well, I don't know why the camera's not shifting, but that's okay.
1: Um, Jeff, before we do that, and I thank you for that because I know I can get, you know, like a runaway train with this, but I've got, you know, all these years of stuff in me. I, I really haven't had a lot of help to process a lot of this.
0: Well, that's where I'm going with this, Kathleen. That's exactly where I'm going with this. And because we're going to get into your redemption story, I want to unpack some of your past now. And, and I really think that Jesse holds some answers to some things and you've touched on the fact that in Argentina there's a lot of Nazis we know that a lot of the Nazi SS you know fled uh from Germany into Argentina and they hid there and they grew up there and it sounds like your family was involved in them yeah. uh it certainly you know the Nazi SS was not just an anomaly this was something that was planned and uh and for you know hundreds of years if not a thousand years beforehand uh, but you know, you you started off going into the entertainment business, and you know it's you know it's the casting couch, it's the uh, you know the time in the car, and you're exposed to all of this, and then you meet this wonderful man, and you know he's he's living the high life in the in the in the hotel business, and and yet it's it's all abuse. It's it's you know you're just a trophy, and you know and then you know you meet this argentinian model guy and you know and then you get into this whole family so that's where i want jesse to pick up because jesse have their eyes been on kathleen from the beginning i'm thinking back to when she was a child they're giving her enemas and they're doing tarot cards and seances and stuff like that and you know how does this work jesse unpack it a little bit for us well
2: the, the first thing that triggered me was the connection with someone with Chicago. Um, Chicago was one of their main training centers, and there's an underground military base there that was highly used um, you know, by uh, the Nazi that I've identified, Michael Carcock. Um, and out of there, he trained, you know, the individuals who ran the US military. Uh, well, let me redefine the US um, Department of Defense, some of those agencies along with another individual who ran the CIA. So each of them were given different jobs within um, the military were trained by this Nazi person and all of them had ties to that Chicago area. Um, I know there were high ties with the Chicago mafia that they um, you know, worked within the system So, you know, I have to pose the question, you know, was it, did their tracking and, you know, were there things they were doing to groom and train and track you even from that youngest age with somebody who was trained to, um, you know, kind of guide you in a direction. And, um, you know, I've learned that there's things that they, you know, do to set, you up. They'll put people in your life who, you know, appear or have an appearance of being a safe individual. And those individuals are really kind of their directional tools to get you where you need to go. Um, And, you know, when you get to those points where you're almost breaking because of the abuse, I've noticed that they will put individuals who seem, you know, to be that safe space who will center you, but then those individuals are used to, you know, redirect into another direction. Um, so those were some things that I noticed. And then, you know, the other ties I was seeing connections to um, is that a lot of, at the highest levels, these Luciferians are um, York or Scottish right Masons. And so there was a lot, especially about your wedding um, that I was sitting there like, huh, that's a lot like some of our family weddings. Um, but they would use those. What I learned is with the women, um, they would use events like that. And really, it would be for the man's, um, for his Masonic vows. So he'd be, you know, getting higher in his Masonic level. And that's just one of the rituals that they use and you know it's guised as a wedding um so i did you know have some questions like if you you know were kneeling on uh pillows in front of a table um as that was happening like a real low level table um if there was a cup on there that would look you know they often guise it as a communion cup um that a lot of times is you know a masonic vow that they're doing
1: that is our wedding picture i would have given you that picture i don't have it but i it's in my mind of course um we are kneeling yes on a um a uh, low level and he is um yes that was us that was my wedding i i um i did want to mention though when you were talking about chicago that i was taken to playboy and playboy was a very big And, of course, this is pre-Argentina, right? This is with the hotel man. Um, His father was a Rosenblatt, and he was Hefner's original partner in Playboy. So they took me to all through Playboy, like to Great Gorge and um, all these Playboy hotel resorts in um, Wisconsin and Chicago and all like that. So... Um, Playboy did call, you know, when I was in my modeling age. Um, So Playboy was an issue. Um, I do know that that particular man I lived with for 10 years, um, he did spend a lot of time at the Playboy Mansion. Um, Mm -hmm. I turned down Playboy, okay? It's amazing that I did, but I just wanted to say that there was something about that, you know, in Chicago, being at the Towers in on Lakeshore Drive with this very affluent family before Argentina.
2: Yeah, and where were some of the, uh, I've brought out a lot about the Wisconsin areas too, Um, not naming exact specifics, but where were some of like the Wisconsin retreat centers that they were using for Playboy?
1: Um, These were the, um, I just remember called Great Gorge. Um, There was two of them in the area One, I think, was in Illinois and the other one was in um, Wisconsin. And they took me to both of those places. And it's the weirdest thing, you know, he was a young, gorgeous guy. And there was some um, strange stuff there because I do remember, like, hypnosis being done while we were there, like, Mm -hmm. they were very into hypnosis. they get into the hypnosis through um, um, magic shows they would do, say, in the di- in the dining rooms for entertainment. You know, they'd start out with that by saying, um, we've got a guy that's going to, you know, do a magic show. Anybody here want to do participate? And, of course, I raise my hand and next thing I know, we're off being hypnotized. And these are all, you know... All done in these big hotels, and um, and part of the life I lived, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't put it together, you know. And now I'm looking at Playboy very differently uh, because I lived in Hollywood. Um, I remember th- being angry that I couldn't go to the Playboy Club with him when we were living together, and he mm-hmm. went to be at the Playboy Club, and I, you know. Um, he, he was an amazing guy because he ended up being going from Playboy to Hyatt to the Hard Rock Cafe in um, Las Vegas, mm. and he not too long ago. So when I found out that he killed himself, I was devastated because I used to call him the love of my life, and I don't know. I don't know if that has something to do with my history, you know, Mm. Um, but um, he was an alcoholic, played with guns and did all these other things. He was so troubled. Um, But see, when I found my gorgeous Argentine model husband, I thought, this is good. I'm doing well because he's not an alcoholic. He's not a drug addict, but he had a sex addiction. That was so bad. Mm-hmm. And here I am a mom trying to just I was married, I was with him for 14 years. That I, I refused to be divorced. I just kept looking for more and more therapists.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm telling you, Jesse, it was when I really woke up, and I <clears throat> I think I really woke up like Five months ago, Mm. like putting pieces of this puzzle together, you know what I mean? Right. Abortions, constant abortions, constant sexual stuff. It's all very demonic.
0: Yeah, the, uh, you didn't talk about that stuff a lot during the story, but when I was researching you, Kathleen, um, that's the part that really tugged on my heartstrings was the abortions and the, uh, miscarriages and, you know, there, it just, how much does one person have to endure?
1: Um, Jeff, uh, to have someone actually just be compassionate about it. I've been in the church with them helping me because being with two little kids, but the church kicked us, kicked me to the curb so many times. Like they were never compassionate. And a little bit of compassion that says, you're not nuts, you're not. You're not demonically possessed because that's what a lot of the Christ- churches would tell me. You know, you you I mean to tell you I just want to thank you for saying that because I've had more people tell me I'm a liar. I've been rejected and exploited more by the churches.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The churches. Yeah. I, I Now these families that we live on the run we live on the run, right? Because we're afraid of our government. We're afraid of missing and exploited. We're afraid of the State Department. We're afraid of the, the, the federal marshals, right? We end up on the church doorstep begging for them to protect us and to understand us and to help our children. And you know what? I've been shown to the door more times because they say you're either you know, but they helped us at the same time, you know, and that's the confusion for people like me. I, I'm a relatively new believer. I found Jesus found me. Okay. Jesus pursued me for real.
0: T- okay? t- tell us about that.
1: Well, I was living, helping the poor of Argentina. People used to say I was like, I was like Evita or I hate to say this, but they used to say that I was like Mother Teresa, because I actually had an in with the poor orphanage. They call them homes. They're not orphanages because Argentina is so proud. They don't let you adopt their children. Okay. They keep these children in homes, 160 kids, and they let one person show up a year and sit with the kid, and then they're not adoptable. So I knew something was up. I knew something was up because they let me in. They started letting me in. And I couldn't believe it because my Spanish was pretty rough. <laughs> um, but I i was living in chaos. My husband ran away to India. He extorted U.S. dollars. He was using me for smuggling. I, I lost everything. And i I had two little boys. And my pastor who had been counseling us as a family, he was so wonderful. He was the he was probably the only one that really ever found any value in me, to be honest with you. And he said, we got to pray because you're either going to stay here and try to survive this, or we're going to get you out of here and we're going to try to get you home. But first thing we need to do is we need to know what God wants to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I've been in that church for like, I was in the church for nearly three years. I didn't have a relationship with God. I didn't know Jesus. (laughs) I didn't know him. And so when he said that, uh, I was in a mental, I was like, they were organizing around me, a very small group that just said, man, we're going to, we're just gonna believe God for this. So they baptize me and the whole church comes outside and they get around the swimming pool and in the water I go and out I come and my little six year old looks at me and I'm soaking wet in this white robe with a towel around me and he says, mom, what's gonna happen to us? And I knew that we were gonna be smuggled out the next day. And that was where the journey began and he handed me a book. Jeff, the book was let the journey begin and in the book was money. He said, you're going to need some cash. Here's the book. The journey's going to begin. And he asked me this, he said, what do you want? Do you want a house in the United States where you can find a church and begin your journey? Or do you want a church? that'll try to find you a house because I don't have the house. I got the church. And what did I think? I'm thinking survival, man. I'm going, I, I got, I haven't been home as a single mom. I raised my children with maids and nannies and, you know, guards. I have I, I was a hands-on mom. Okay. But I still was thinking survival. So I said, I'll take the house and I'll find a church. And sure enough, I get back to the U.S., and I am not kidding you. I didn't know what a Baptist was. I didn't know what a Methodist was. Yeah. And I get into a church where they're slain in the spirit, and I, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, what? The person's on the floor? And my kids are looking at me going, Mom. It was – and that's why it's been a long journey to healing. This yeah. Jesus – I really I begged I I wanted to die for the first year I was totally suicidal Mm. and I kept saying to the Lord I'd say this please kill me Mm. just let it be over so I can stop suffering because I'm not equipped I don't know how to tell these boys what's gonna happen to us and I just started to homeschool them on the run, living in the mountains of Tennessee and Georgia on the Bible. (laughs) I'm like, hey, this is good stuff. And they started to love it. Mm. They're like, wait a minute, we're on the pages here. This is Daniel. And oh, let me tell you this little piece of the story. When Dylan was born, they insisted that I not name him D-Y-L-A-N because in Argentina, you have to pick the name out of the, the country's book of names, okay? They're very, very controlling, okay? Argentines are very, you know. And they said, no, that name, it's not in our name. I want an American name. And they said to me, well, wouldn't you like Daniel? And I said, I don't want Daniel. I want Dylan. Well, he for 10 days, he didn't have a name. Hmm. And he's the oldest, right? He was the one they were really after. They wanted him back on Argentine soil, OK? Full on. They would have First done form. anything. Yep. And so, so I sent Dylan away. I turned myself into Atlanta federal judge. I don't know where he is. I give him to somebody to keep him safe. And the guy comes back to turn him in and give him back to the Atlanta judge. And what do you see? The guy says to me. Daniel and Dylan believes he's Daniel. And I want to tell you something. Dylan is this healthy eater. He is. There's something there. Spiritual. Spiritual. Spiritually, I am not kidding you. And I just talked to him recently and I said, Dylan, that Daniel thing, that wasn't an accident. You were 14 when you were returned. (laughs) You were in a strange place that you kept talking the truth and you kept fighting and you wrote that letter. Justice is a weird thing, you know? Look at what happened with my younger son who wrote and planned his escape. Where did he become? What is he today?
2: Yeah. God definitely, God uses all of that, you know, to bring us right where he wants us. This This picture here.
1: That's what he is today.
0: Oh, I stopped the sh- screen sharing. I thought you were done, but he, this is, is this the one with him a, as an officer? Yes. Yes, a- and it's in the Air Force.
1: Special Ops Intelligence.
0: Mm.
1: May I say, can you see the color of his hat?
0: We would have to get you to share from your side again to uh, to show that.
2: I believe it was blue, wasn't it blue?
1: No. Naval? No? It's a white hat.
0: White. It's a white hat.
1: I can't tell you what he's doing today. I can tell you that isn't just as amazing because we suffered a lot, but a lot. And yet they got a hold of his testimony, his video of him saying, I want to be like the Marines. And I want to save, I want to protect and save people.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And yet they pursued him. They flew him from Florida as a junior to the Air Force Academy and groomed him for four years. And I don't know what he's doing today. I can't speak to that. Okay.
0: But I love (laughs) the fact that you said he's a white hat.
1: I'd say, I say that he's a white hat to me. He's a white hat because I know what he did at the Academy. I saw, I was there. I went out there and lived there as a support system around them. And I spent four years as a, a sponsor mom. And I'd have the cadets at my house every weekend and I'd listen to them and I'd watch them and I learned a lot, a lot. And I kept saying, this is really God. This is God. This is very, very interesting. Yeah. Amazing.
2: Well, wow. what a good note to end on. And we definitely are going to have to have you back, Kathleen, if, you, if you'll come back and get more into it.
1: Um, there's a flying thing <laughs> flying around me here. I, I want to just have a minute to speak to the moms. Can I do that? Absolutely. Of course. Children who find themselves, who call me sometimes and find themselves um, frustrated and scared and hopeless and and confused about who to trust and hearing an awful lot. Or maybe you've lost your child and you don't think you're going to ever find him again. I know there were many times, months and months that I didn't know if my children were alive. I didn't know if I'd ever see them again, you know? And the fact is, is that all I could do was pray for them. I had this little book called Prayer, uh, Power of a Praying Parent. And I I just would pray and pray. And I'd look at the moon and say, they have the same, they're under the same moon and they're under the same sun and they're alive. and I, I wanna encourage you not to give up on your children. The system is broken. The one world order has been operating for a long, long time. I've been screaming it for 10 years, maybe nine years, but the eyes are on it. And God is, God is opening up things and we can trust him. And he loves our children more than we do have faith know this you know um the lord gave me this scripture and it said you know that um um all your children will be taught by the lord and great will be their peace amen they know they know who loved them and they don't forget Mm -hmm. so have faith hang in there and trust god Trust God, even when you think it's pointless. Just mm-hmm. trust God. He loves our children more than we do.
0: And Kathleen, I just want to say, you know, we're not a church, but we have compassion for you, for your story. And and I got to tell you, our listeners are the greatest. Uh, we really have a, a great select viewership and very faithful to this subject in particular and I just know you're going to be surrounded with prayers like we have a legitimate prayer praying audience and you know we love you Uh, you can reach out to to us at any time and if you want to talk if you just need a friend you know um, we 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 want to be there for you and we appreciate your bravery and And I I just want to say to other survivors out there as well, uh, you're actually an overcomer, uh, but getting out and telling your story, I think can really lift a burden off of, off of your shoulders, you know, part of the part that didn't come out in Kathleen's story today, but I saw in my research was, you know, the burden of carrying secrets of all these years and how devastating it is internally Uh, and you know anything that's hidden in the dark is is not good you know sunshine is a disinfectant and you know god always god didn't preach in dark rooms when he was walking here on the earth jesus didn't go in he went out and he loved the prostitutes he loved everybody and he talked right out and open and there wasn't secret teachings it isn't secret magic or anything like that um so and by the way jesus christ wins in the end uh we do confess jesus christ as our lord and savior on this broadcast and uh and we're really thankful for people like kathleen pizzatullo
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i heard uh, cassie one time talk about holding jesus legs or you know grabbing him and i thought that's the same visual I used to have when I didn't know if my children were alive. I would visualize the same thing. Wow. Clinging to Jesus physically, literally, you know, and just go on wherever he leads you.
0: Yeah.
2: Crazy.
0: Amen. And listen, I also want to thank, there's a couple people in the background and I, I apologize. I forgot the second person's name. Uh, we really weren't uh, totally introduced, but Ian for sure. Uh, for helping out and getting the tv studio ready and and everything he's been doing in the background and the other gentlemen as well special blessings to all of you thank you for watching right on radio uh with our special guest kathleen and uh and jesse of course Uh, my name is jeff if you don't know Uh, so we're gonna see you next time remember love your god (laughs) love your family love your neighbor and that includes kathleen and make a difference in your community right on right on right on